The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Let's pray one more time. We're looking at Luke chapter 2 in our our series on uh, Advent Hope. Lord, thank you uh, that we can gather around Jesus this morning, our, our hope, our meaning, our purpose. Father, whether we've been tracking with Jesus a long time or we're new or we're not yet there, but we're looking for meaning and and find uh, acceptance and love in this Christian community, Lord, I pray that you would do more than we can, that you would work in our hearts, our minds, uh, soften the cynical, uh, encourage the weary, convince the unconvinced, and Lord, just strengthen your children as we try to live following the teachings of Jesus in a dark world. So help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Luke chapter 2. There's a series that actually our church up in Concord and our church in Ware and the church here are all doing together. Uh, finding Oh, well, that's the title, but we're doing this series in um, Luke on Advent hope. And uh, so I'm thrilled that I get to look at all of chapter 2. It's a kind of a big chapter, so buckle in. We're in for a time. No, we're going to try to make this uh, go kind of quickly. We're going to do a kind of a, a unique view of this. Back in October, uh, my wife and I were down visiting my daughter, who's a, doing a college program at Disney World. So yes, for eight months, she's basically slave labor down there, gets free passes, and we are down there. And we get to Hollywood um, Studios to the Star Wars thing. Now, when the first Star Wars came out in 1977, I was 14, you do the math, and, and I just... So we're, we're walking through the Hollywood studios thing, and there is the Millennium Falcon, Falcon that Han Solo sped across the galaxies, carrying all sorts of contraband and stuff. And it, I mean, it, was, it took me back. And I, I, I still remember when uh, Luke Skywalker was flying through the, the uh, canyon of the Death Star, trying to get that last missile to blow up the Death Star, and uh, and and the Tie Fighters are coming in, or X Files—I don't know what they were called. Anyway, and out out of the darkness comes uh, Han Solo and the Millennium Falcon, and saves the day. And you know the rest of the story. And being there, and all that, and they've got the dressed-up stormtroopers dropping, walking by at Hollywood Studios. And I, by the way, I hadn't been to Disney in thirty years. It's a little different. Um, it just caps and captivates your imagination like you feel like you're in it. And uh, that's sort of like Matthew chapter 2 today, okay? Matthew chapter 2, you can read it, and it covers the, like, you've got, you've got the, um, the holy family. You know, you've got Joseph and Mary pregnant, traveling five or six days from little Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem because some government official thought this was a great idea. And so, and they get there, and of course they're poor, there's no place to stay. You know the story. And then the angels come to the shepherds who are outside and tell them to go inside because the the, uh, promised Messiah was being born. And and that's, you kind of get captivated in. (coughs) But kind of like Star Wars, sometimes you read a story, your imagination gets captivated in it, and then you realize, I'm not really part of, like, Luke Skywalker. I'm not really part of that whole Star Wars thing. 
And we could do the same thing with Luke chapter two. We could read it and feel like we don't have a part in this. It's just a story way out there. But I, I really believe that as we kind of take this large view or um, 30,000 foot view of Luke chapter two, it's an opportunity for you and me to see how we fit in the redemptive story of Jesus. And so uh, our goal this morning is, um, as, as, as our theme, is that this text can help us find our place in Jesus' redemptive story. Now, this is a redemptive story, all right? Uh, but what we're going to do is not look so much at the redemptive story as, as the large scene that's taking place in front of us. And we're going to see this grand uh, scope of humanity. We're going to see the powerful and the, and the powerless. Uh, we're going to see that. We're going to see the insiders and the outsiders. We're going to see the young and the old. And, and then we're going to see the country, the country dwellers and the city dwellers. And we're going to see that we all fit into this redemptive story. Now, the redemptive story is real. If we just took time, in fact, let's put up on the screen, um, put up the next slide. I think it should have, yeah. Just, just If we just lift it out, the talking parts from Luke chapter 2, this is kind of what we'd get. We'd get the angels, chapter 2, verse 10. But the angels said, uh, to the shepherds, don't be afraid, for look, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior is born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them, they returned to, and returned to heaven. The, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight uh, to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Okay, so this is a redemptive story. The angels, like big news. We talk, they're talking about a Messiah. They're talking about a Savior. They're coming to these Jewish shepherds who for years and years and years have been told in Sunday school and in, in the, in the, the, well, they're, uh, in, in the um, uh, temple services uh, or in the synagogue services, they were told a Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming to save his people. He's going to sit on the, the, the throne of David. He's going to make everything right. And finally, 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 you and I want this too, there will be peace on earth. And so that promised redeemer, that that's part of this redemptive story. Now, again, if we just lifted the words out of the chap, uh, chapter two here. And the other sort of verbal part is this old guy, Simeon. He's older than I am, if you can believe it. He's just, he's, he's like been around a long time. And Simeon sees baby Jesus being carried into the temple to be um, dedicated to the Lord. And he'd been promised by the Lord that he would see the Messiah come before he dies. And, uh, Let's go to the next slide there. Let's see. Yeah, Simeon took Jesus up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master or Lord, <coughs> excuse me, you can discuss, uh, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation, 
You have prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Okay, this story of redemption. Okay, if, if you don't know the word redemption, think of a redemption center. When I was a kid, we used to collect cans on the side of the road and take them down to the local grocery store and they would give us like a nickel. I don't know what it was. They would give us money for the trash cans. It was called a redemption center. They would pay money and take that which was junked and useless and recycle it and make it new again. Well, in, in a broad sense, that's what God does with us. We've been trashed by the world, by our own greed, our sin, our brokenness. We, we were not filled with what we were meant to be filled with. And some of us are more damaged than others, but we're all like, and we all need to be redeemed. And Christ comes, pays the price. He's our Savior. He redeems us. He fills us with what we were meant to be filled with, the presence of God, and now makes us useful and part of his plan. That's the grand re redemptive story. And so when Simeon talks about having now seen salvation, he's talking about now believing that this child would save not just, so understand if you're not into the Bible very much, God chose a people to bring his Messiah. That's called the Jewish people. And so that was their glory, that they were part of this redemptive story. But for all people, all Gentiles, like probably most of us in this room, it is it's called there the light of revelation, or it turns on the light to our, the meaning of our lives. All right, so that's the redemptive story. That's, that's, that's the words from chapter 2. But if, 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 we, if we believe that's the story, then how do you and I, sitting, you and me, you and I, oh my, oh Lord, how do you and me, you and I, okay, my mother was an English teacher, and she used to correct my English a lot of times, so I have these flashbacks, and my mother would correct me after service. All right. Uh, how are you and I, how do you and I see ourselves in this story? Or like like the Millennium Falcon, are, is it something we, we get in, our imagination gets captivated in, but we're really not in the story? Well, I see us fitting in this story in these ways. First of all, there's, there's this picture of the powerful and the powerless. I'm going to read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Okay, he's the powerful guy. That the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took, took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also. So here's the powerless guy, okay? So some, not just some, Caesar. Caesar was known to be one of the most gifted leaders in human history. Look it up. It's in, in Wikipedia. It's got to be true. He decided he wants to know where everybody is. He wants, a, he wants a full count. He wants a full census. And to do that, you had to report to the place you were born, taking it, giving no regard to the fact that some people were poor. It was going to make a hard, difficult trip. Some people were not healthy. Some people were pregnant. The powerless had no choice because the Roman government was run pretty ruthlessly. You didn't obey, you die or you go work in some slave camp somewhere. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, 
who was engaged to him, him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in tight, tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So the, the, here we got the powerful and the powerless. God is at work in both. The obvious, as we said, the powerful is, is Caesar Augustus. The powerless is obviously this poor couple. I mean, this is like going to the DMV on steroids and rather waiting two hours, you wait five days. The journey from Nazareth, their home, to Bethlehem is about 90 miles. Imagine walking that. I was trying to figure it out. You walked like 18 miles a day, that's five days. I mean, it's like, and, and your wife's pregnant. You know, all the pictures have her on her donkey, but we're not sure if there was a donkey. Like, I think maybe, but who knows? Like, they were poor. Now, a couple of thoughts here. First of all, the powerful have a harder time following Christ, right? And Jesus has said it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. First Corinthians 1, it says, not many wealthy, not many wise, not many noble will enter the kingdom of heaven. But being rich and powerful doesn't make one wicked or more wicked than if you didn't have. In other words, just being wealthy and rich doesn't, it's just because you don't see your need as much. And being poor and vulnerable doesn't make one more virtuous, okay? In my own lifetime, like Queen Elizabeth has been an amazing Christian woman, 70 years, known for her Christian virtue. In fact, this will be the first year you will not hear the Queen's Christmas Eve address, which if you, if you go Google it and listen to them, they're only like, like six or eight minutes long, but it's gospel-saturated. She talks about Christ being her hope. Back in 2012, our church we planted in Concord in 2002, so 10 years in, the Catholic Church was consolidating three churches into one, and so one of the buildings uh, we tried to purchase, and we reached out to the Green family. They own Hobby Lobby. And they were willing to buy the building for $500,000. They were in the process of willing to do that um, at, out of their, their, their wealth. And I, I use those two stories of Queen Elizabeth and the Green family to say, just because you're powerful doesn't mean you have to be wicked. But just because you're poor doesn't make you righteous. Our status on earth doesn't impress the Lord of heaven because it is not a, a determiner of our eternal status. And the book of Proverbs is filled with many admonitions to, the, to those who are powerful and wealthy to honor the Lord. The second thought is that Jesus would model how choosing the way of powerlessness is the kingdom of power, that giving up power is actually at the heart of the gospel. When we love our enemies, we're giving up the power to be vindictive, and cruel, and the gospel changes all that. So why is this important? Because often in our lives, we feel powerless. We feel like we're, we're being jerked around by the system. We feel like we don't have a voice. And the reality is, that's okay. There's someone who does. And if you feel powerless, you fit in the gospel. Now, if you happen to be a very powerful person, and we all have a measure of power, like like uh, as one 
um, psychologists would say, you have the power to make your bed. You actually have power over things. You have power to do things. But if you're really powerful, like the Green family, like Queen Elizabeth, you have the power to, to leverage that for good. All of that to say is, in this story, God is at work in the powerful and the powerless, whether they want it or not. It says in the scriptures, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wanted. Do you know why Caesar sent people back to their town to be registered? Because God wanted Joseph to take Mary and go to Bethlehem to fulfill what he promised in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. That was God at work. All right, that, that's one thought. The second, as we read through this, there's, there's this next scene. Okay, so let's, and this, this tells us that we can fit in whether we're powerful or powerless. We can fit in whether we're outside, insiders or outsiders. And we're talking about this in a kind of a religious context. Follow me as I read chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. I don't think it's up on the screen, but that's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip the parts we already read already. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were terrified. Now, I'm going to skip what they said because we already read that. And then the, it says that after they left, the shepherds hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And after seeing them, they reported the message that they were about, uh, told about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherd returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So here we're reading about religious insiders and religious outsiders. No one is closer to God than angels, okay? They were created to be in his presence. They're the ultimate insiders. I mean, they're so inside that when God told the children of Israel to set up a place of worship that God would dwell, okay, there was the Holy of Holies. And if you read last week or week before, uh, you remember Zechariah, who the father of John the Baptist, he got to go into that Holy of Holies. One guy got to go in there once a year, I think. I think that's how it worked. But you know who who were who were in there all the time, at least image in an image fashion? The angels. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant, when God said, Don't carve graven images, he didn't want people worshiping them. But he told the children of Israel, but carve graven images and put them on the, the seat of mercy, the, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Why? It's a picture of two cherubim or angels, because they're forever worshiping God. They are the ultimate insiders. A priest could go in there once a year, but the angels are in God's presence, pictured by the Ark of the Covenant all the time. You go outside, there's, there's the place where the priests offer the altar. Then you go out to the, the uh, court of men. Beyond that, the court, uh, I don't know what order it goes in, the court of the women, the court of Gentiles. But there are these like rings of, of separateness, or separate, yeah, separate, yeah, being separated uh, from God. Well, all the way outside the city, who's all the way outside the city? The ultimate outsiders are the shepherds who had to keep watch over the flock even at night. 
In fact, some of their sheep would make it into God's presence before they would, of course, dead, but they was, they, in other words, they were like the ultimate outsiders. They rarely could leave their flock and go into the temple to worship. So we have this picture of the ultimate insiders, the ultimate outsiders, and how does this apply to us? Do you ever think sometimes that religious leaders or, or people who come to church with a suit coat on are somehow closer to God? Jesus didn't come for any group of people. He didn't come for insiders. He came for all of us. And why would the angels come to the shepherds? God is proving a point. He's here not just for insiders, but for outsiders. In fact, he has a heart for the outsiders. The Old Testament has this crazy, in fact, Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus. If you go to Matthew, don't do that. But like, if you were to read it, it lists like who was born of who and has all the big names in there, Abraham and David. But it also has name of four women, not the women who are heroes of the Bible, like Sarah and Rebecca. The four women are outsiders. We have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. Bathsheba. All four of these women have a sexual cloud over their head. Like, they, they, well, one of them actually is a prostitute. But like, Tamar, read her story. Ruth was, I mean, she, she, she acted like one in one sense. And, and of course, you mentioned Rahab and Bathsheba slept with the king. They're listed in there because God is for the outsiders, the people who do not feel like somehow I have a, I, God would care about me. That God has come for those who are far from him. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about inviting those outside into his wedding. Sometimes we can feel like outsiders. We're not, we don't feel like we're as important. We're as close to God. We're in his presence like others. That feeling should be for you a reminder that God came for you. He didn't just come for the powerful and the powerless. He didn't just come for the insiders. He came for people who feel like they're outsiders. He's calling us all into him. A third way you fit in Jesus' redemptive story is because the story includes the young and the old. Not too many old people here, but uh, let me read how it starts the young people in verse 21. When the eight days were completed for Jesus' circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angels before he was conceived. And when the day of their, their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as is written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to, <coughs> excuse me, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle dove and two young pigeons. <coughs> All right, there's the young couple. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was a righteous and, de and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was been revealed to him that by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he would see the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, 
Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon said what we read earlier. I'm not going to read that again. We already read that. That's part of the redemptive story. But on top of Simeon, besides Simeon, there was a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years. I mean, like wicked old. That's not the verse, but having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. This means either she's 84 years old or she was 84 years after her husband died. There's a debate about that. It doesn't matter whether you're 84 or add to it, you're old. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. We've already talked about this poor young couple. I mean, we know how poor they were because they could not offer the sacrifice of a lamb. They had to offer the turtle doves um, as an offering. That was in the law for poor people. As we know their story, they couldn't afford a place to stay in Bethlehem. I don't know about you, but when you lack is an embarrassment. Young people often start off in such need, in such debt, whether it's college loans or just trying to get by because their job, they're starting at a minimum wage job or such. And like this young couple, just keeping things, keeping all the bills paid is a struggle. And this couple, all they could do, all they could do in their young attempt to be a, a new family was to obey the Lord. And if you hear nothing else as young people, you guys back there, at the end of the day, bottom line, just obey what the Lord says. You'll be all right. Bills will be tough. Life will be tough. But just obey the Lord. His, his ways are the ways of life. Then we got these two old people here. And what do Simeon and Anna teach us? They didn't waste their age. They weren't down on the Mediterranean hanging out. And in fact, Anna's case, she, she gave herself constantly to serving in the temple. She was probably so skinny because she fasted frequently. And I realize at King's Cross here, there aren't that many aged people. A couple of gray hairs, but not many. The reality is, whether you're young or you're old, we are called to find our meaning in the promise of Christ. And the old people here, you know what they live, they mark their lives? Endurance and sacrifice. And so if young people find their meaning in Christ and just obeying his teaching, just, just trust him. He knows better than you do. I know you're young, you think you're better, and that rule doesn't apply to you, but it does. Just trust what he says. Old people, just keep enduring. Like Simeon and Anna, cling to the promise that God is going to fulfill what he says. And it's a time of, yes, we sacrifice. We sacrifice for our kids, but more importantly, we sacrifice for God's son. In fact, this is a side note, but I just urge my peers in New Hampshire, so many of them consider, oh, in fact, I mean, many of them have, but like they flee to the South. And so listen, you're going to get eternal beachfront property in the kingdom. Just stay in New Hampshire for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the young people. All right, you've heard me say it. If you need, you need me to talk to somebody, I'll talk to you. What does this story remind us? God is at work with the young and the old. So he worked, he's working among the powerful and the powerless. He's working among the religious insiders and religious outsiders. He's working among the young and the old. Now, you find yourself in that spectrum somewhere. 
All right? This is a reminder. God is at work in your life. Finally. God is at work among country dwellers and city dwellers. Now, there's a lot we could have done here, but I'm just going to stick with this one. Fast forward 12 years, okay? We just, we just read about the birth of Christ, the dedication of Christ and all that. That, just, that was the first part of chapter 2. We've, we've read about his, the, redempt, the, the redemptive theme of who Christ is. Fast forward 12 years, and this is what happens. Verse 39. And when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Uh, you 12-year-olds or such, don't do that, okay? Don't do that. Even though, don't say Jesus did it. I'm going to say it. Don't, don't do that. But let me, I'll finish the story and explain why this happened. Because you're not Jesus. Let me just say that. You're not Jesus. You're not in a temple. You're not in Jerusalem. So this doesn't apply. All right, there we go. Assuming that Jesus was with, up the, with, was in the traveling party, they, the parents, went on a day's journey. Remember, it was like at least minimum a five-day journey, probably longer, from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. When they did not find Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. And all of those who heard Jesus were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, or Jewish, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said, what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. That's a key word. He was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor in God, with God and with, with people. Here, 12 years old, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. He's growing in understanding of who he is, and he's captivated by his destiny. It's a way, he's being awoken to the fact that his life was more than just the son of a carpenter. He's growing in under, a self-awareness that his life was to be wrapped up in the temple somehow. And so at, on this trip, he's so captivated by it. And from the, from the promises of, 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 uh, to David to the promise of a, uh, a lasting Jerusalem, Jesus was being awoken to what his rightful place was. Jerusalem was to be his home, ultimately. If you don't know the Bible, fast forward to the end, Jesus rules from the new Jerusalem, okay? So Jesus is being awoken to, this is my destiny. I'm meant to rule from the city of Jerusalem. Ah, but his life on earth would be marked by rural life and ministry. 30 years he'd live in Nazareth. So if you go 90 miles from where we are right now, you end up in a town called Warren on Route 25, north of Plymouth, population 900, very much like Nazareth. There's um, 
well, it's actually known because I know it because we took our kids there on the free trips to the uh, fish hatchery. There's a state ha a fish hatchery there. You just drive in and look at the fish. I mean, it's free. It's not free. Your taxes pay for you know. Um, but like Warren isn't known for much. There's the Mount Car Timber product products. There are two campgrounds. There's a septic company. There's a horseshoer, and it's a population of 900. And that's the kind of town that Jesus spent 30 years in. In fact, next chapter, chapter 3, will say Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. His public, I'm sorry, his public ministry. And he knew that Jerusalem was his ultimate place. And this is what this tells us. You see, here in Manchester, the Queen City, where Mayor Craig can boast of a city that's transitioned for over the last century from textile to technology and, high, and high, uh, higher education. You've got culture here. You've got the Courier Art Gallery. My wife and I have been to the Frank Lloyd Wright Zimmerman home. It's just so cool. You've got the Snooth Arena. Something's going down there on there today. The Palace Theater. Um, you've got the New Hampshire's biggest airport. And people move here from all over the state. But see, whether you're from Manchester or Manhattan, Washington, D.C., or Warren, New Hampshire. Jesus works there, and he loves the people there. And your identity isn't matched by where you live. Now, you, it's fine to live in Manchester. It's also fine to live in Warren. Part of my job with Acts 29 is to promote rural ministry, so I kind of get off on this. Not to say it's more important to do rural ministry, but it is not less important. What is this telling us? That you fit into God's redemptive plan, whether you're a country dweller or like most of you, city dwellers. Why is this so important as we read this story, this redemptive story of Jesus? Because often we can read this story and feel like it's out there. It's not, it doesn't relate to us. But the breadth of chapter 2 is saying, listen, whether you're powerful or powerless, you have a part in Christ's redemptive story. You know, whether, whether you're an insider and an elder, you know, or an outsider, you feel like, I don't like, I'll never measure up around here. Like, these guys are all like angels. No, Jesus is inviting you into his redemptive story. Whether you're young, which most of you are, or old, like some of us, we all have a role. We fit. We belong in God's redemptive story. Whether you live in a, so for, you know, growing up in, rural, my dad was a rural pastor in New Hampshire. We grew up in little towns in New Hampshire. So Manchester was that big, scary city. Well, you come to Manchester after a while, I kind of go like, nah, this isn't that scary. But whether you live in the city or you live in a small little village in northern New Hampshire, you fit in God's redemptive plan. So here's, here's the two takeaways. If you're lost today, Jesus came to save you from your, your attempts to save yourself, your attempts to find meaning, your attempts to, to bail yourself out of your own trouble. He came to do all that for you. He came to redeem like the, the, the cans on the side of the road. He's come to pay the price, which is death on the cross, which we'll remember in communion momently, um, momentarily. He came to pay for you and fill you with the Spirit and make you what you are meant to be, a part of His family. And to you Christians, 
Listen, most of the time we feel powerless. Trust the most powerful one who has conquered sin and death and now rules on high and he's coming back to bring peace. And as people who are being invited into the presence of God, you do not, no longer need to feel like an outsider. You don't have to be wearing a jacket to feel like being inside. Jesus invites you right into his presence to worship and work. By the way, Jesus was obedient to his Father on, in, in heaven and his Father on earth. And what he did in, in Nazareth, which we have no writing about, was just as obedient as when he died on the cross. Certainly, one accomplished more than the other. But both were just as glorious. So worship and work where you are. And if you're young, well, you just obey and trust what the Father says. And if you're old, just keep enduring with sacrifice. And at all, with all that, whether you live in Manchester or, or a remote place, be at peace with where God has you, because Jesus is at work. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for Luke chapter 2. It invites us into your redemptive story, and it shows that we fit. It shows that we have a place. Father, for those in this room who have yet to trust you, who, who have yet to fully commit to, to you as their ultimate Savior, as the, as the meaning of life, as the, as the light of the world, as the forgiver of sins, Lord, I pray that, that you would break through and that they would experience the, the freeing power of the Holy Spirit of having their guilt set removed, and the light of life enter in, and the joy of the Spirit now satisfying that longing inside them. Father, would you save sinners this morning? Father, for my sisters and brothers here, I pray, Father, that they would not feel like outsiders. They would not feel powerless. They would not feel that their age somehow relegates them to some, some place, and that where they live somehow is, is more important or less important, Lord, that they would they would rest it in peace knowing that you are at work in their lives. And Father, that you would continue to do good works through us as we worship and serve you. Thank you, Lord, for how this part of the Advent story reminds us that you're redeeming all things, our lives, all parts of our lives for you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.